Derek Weston is a former Presbyterian minister, though he still serves as an elder teacher in the tradition, and now spends his time working as a youth director and counselor at the 29th Street Community Center in Baltimore. One of his projects several years ago, he writes about, was to take the youth in his charge to do some cleanup at one of the city parks nearby. It was a constant target for vandals and, and miscreants, and it was constantly full of trash and almost unusable. And so he would daily take his group of youths out to start just picking up the trash in the park. And lo and behold, every day when they went back again to start working on the trash, there would be more trash in the park. All of their work the previous day having been erased. But they kept on doing it day after day. They trudged through it. It started to get a little tedious having to start all over again. But they kept on doing it. And then one day they arrived to find that one section of the fence in the park that was already well dilapidated by this point had been completely torn off of its framing and left to lie in the middle of the park. And on this particular day, that's when Derek's youth broke. Their joy in their work was gone. They had no will to do it anymore. They were despondent. Now, Weston tried his best to tackle the work enthusiastically and see if he could infect the youth with some of his own spirit for doing the work, and it worked for a little while, but it was tiring. By the time lunch came around, they just were not into it anymore. The despondency had set in, and Weston himself found that rather than infecting his kids with his enthusiasm, he had succumbed to that sense of despondency that they felt as well. Why? Why do we keep coming back to do this over and over again? It's just going to be the same thing the next day. So Weston did something unusual, not unusual for him. He had taken up gardening during a difficult time of his life recently. And so he decided to do the only thing he thought he could do in that moment. He planted flowers in the park. Why are you doing that, Mr. Weston? What good is that going to do? You know how this works. We're going we're gonna to start growing these, and the kids are just going to come and tear it all back up again. They're going to pull them all out. What's the point? But they joined him nonetheless. And as he shared the story, it had only been about a week since they had planted the flowers. And he said, at a week's time, they were still there and starting to bud. And who knows, he said, maybe next week, maybe next week, someone will come and pull them all up. But in those moments of despondency and all that destruction and despair, what he says is planting the flowers in that moment felt like an act of insurgency. He writes, planting flowers goes against a culture of death and violence. 
It pushes back against the corrosive effects of much of everyday life. It asks us to be patient in a world of constant hurry. It reminds us of impermanence. The fact that they might get plucked up or crushed or that we'll have to do this all over again next year doesn't eliminate the value of planting flowers now. At the end of the day, I want to be the kind of person who would rather make a small, temporary gesture of goodness and beauty rather than add to the ugliness or do nothing at all. It's always possible that a few might follow me in this small gesture and multiply its effects. Derek Watson's planting of flowers was an act of hope. Brave, almost. And it was also pre-pandemic, pre the last six years, before things felt like they were really starting to fall apart around here. And one might wonder today if he would have the energy, the inspiration, the courage to plant flowers in the midst of chaos and destruction. When nowadays, as I said before, everything seems to be just too everything. We feel weighed down, we feel burdened, and hope perhaps might feel like naivete. What do we have left to hope for? The climate is gonna get us if the, if the economy doesn't, if the capitalistic overlords don't bury us all under their need for more and more money, if the political order around the world falls apart, what, do, what are we gonna do? What is there to hope for? Marianne McKibben Dana is one of my spiritual gurus. She sort of knows that, but not really. She is a Presbyterian minister herself in Virginia, and I encountered her many years ago now as a fellow clergy improviser. That's how I discovered her, and I've been a, a follower of her blog from since then. And when she announced she had a new book coming out, it's one of the rare times that I pre-ordered something. And I got it, and you can see now it is very well loved and very tabbed and marked up. Um, it is called Hope, a user's manual. Marianne wrote this in the midst of the pandemic when things were already feeling hopeless and at a time where she had just come through a tough time with her own teenage daughter who had fallen under a debilitating depression and they were trying to help her sort that out and get medicated and figure out the coping strategies and all of that. And yet she still felt hopeful in the midst of all that grinding down. And so she wondered, where is that coming from? Where do we find that when everything seems to everything? And what she wound up was, with was a new book, 46 rather short reflections of her own, followed by questions for our own reflection and some exercises to try because everything is about spiritual practice. 
and it's got a lot to cover, and I'm not going to cover the whole thing today. It is deep, and it is rich. But in part, what she conveys in this book, and what I think is the important thing to understand this morning and to wrap our heads around and to carry with us is understanding what hope is not, because we often mistake hope for other things. Getting a sense of what hope actually is. And then how do we exercise it? How do we practice our own sense of hopefulness in the world? She begins the book by talking about what hope is absolutely not. Number one, big on the list, hope is not optimism. Optimism tends to be more the rose-colored glasses view of the world. She expresses it a little bit like a mathematical equation. Our past experience plus our present work will come to equal future greatness because we know this and we know what we're doing now, and so the outcome will always be the same. Things will turn out all right. But optimism is an individual attribute. As an individual, I can be optimistic about things, but as a group, optimism is a little harder. It's not really a communal act. And it's also rather passive. Optimism is saying everything will be all right and expecting it will be. And for many people, they assume that because everything does turn out all right for them, but not everybody lives in a situation where the world will work in their favor. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, she quotes in her reflection, optimism and hope are not the same. Optimism is belief that the world is changing for the better, while hope is the belief that together we can make things better. Hope is not optimism. And optimism is a symptom of a larger problem in our culture today, that of toxic positivity. The expectation that we will always put our best face forward, not making anybody else uncomfortable with our sorrow or our grief or whatever else is going on in our life. We must present perfection and happiness and all things well at all time. And we express it to one another across social media and our social circles as Things will work out. Everything happens for a reason. You'll get over it. Toxic positivity demands no bad feelings being evident, at least in front of others' eyes. It is a form of what we might call a moral correctness in our world today that shuts out all other feeling, encourages us to not express it to a point where it shuts it down for some, including the feeling of hope. Hope is not a chain of cause and effect. We cannot plan out hope. We cannot say, 
step A, do this, step B, and then tie A and B together and give it a good square knot, and then the hopeful thing happens. There are no step-by-step -step instructions. Hope understands that most of what exists in this world is completely out of our control. We cannot plan for it. We cannot create the step-by-step -step product. And as humans, we don't like the sense of not being in control of our own spheres, of our own world. So often, when we feel things are out of control, we'll turn away from hope and towards a sense of competence. I know how to handle this. Someone has the answer. I will go find them. Hope acts beyond any results we may be trying to work for. Hope understands that we are not in control all the time, and yet, it can be an anchor in the midst of chaos. And because hope doesn't work like a chain of cause and effect, hope is not future-proofing. Hope knows that we cannot plan for every contingency that might be ahead of us. We're just not that prescient. And as wise as we are and as smart as we are and as talented we are, we can't account for everything that might happen. We cannot wall ourselves off completely from what is to come. We can plan to a point, but it still requires a sense of hope on our part, which helps us to clarify our values in the world, to build the skills we need to survive, and to survive the waves of change that are coming whether we want them to or not. I think I gave a sermon on that a couple of weeks ago. And finally, and maybe most importantly, hope is not the opposite of despair. Despair does not drown out hope. In fact, the two things can coexist equally in the same heart at the same time. Like love and hate can coexist, like joy and sadness can go and coexist in the same person. Despair does not quash hope. It provides us the fuel that drives us into acts of hope. It becomes the thing that we can do in the face of our own despair. And that may be all very well and good, you say, but what is hope then? What is it we're actually reaching for? Hope is what we do, says McKibben. She tells a story about the struggles helping her daughter through her depression while in high school. She was getting ready to head off to college and starting to panic and have massive anxiety about things. She had learned to cope in high school, and now she was moving on to something new and was drowning in the sense of, but what if I slip again? What if I spiral down? What if everything goes wrong? And her mother says, all right, what will happen? 
what will happen if you do start to spiral again? And her daughter answers in the negative. I'll, I'll get kicked out of school. I'll fail my grades. I'll have to come live at home again. All this bad stuff will happen. And she says, no, 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 no. If you spiral, what will happen? What will you do? Well, I'll ask for help. I'll get an appointment with my therapist. I will do this and this and that to help pull me up from the spiral that may be happening. Hope is contained in what we make of the world around us, what we make real, what we do in the face of pain and injustice in the world. It's not looking off longingly at some future point when it all will be fixed. It's understanding what here and now in the moment we can do to stave off the despair and the destruction. And because hope is just what we do, we little finite creatures, hope is enough because we are enough. The little things we do matter greatly. Dana talks about the Jewish word dayenu that gets repeated ad nauseum throughout the Passover. Enough. It would have been enough if God had only gotten us out of slavery. It would have been enough. If God had only helped us cross the Red Sea, it would have been enough. If God had only given us the Torah, it would have been enough. But things keep happening and happening. The little things make a difference. Hope invites us to see grace in each step that we take along our path and asks us to celebrate what else might happen as a result of the little thing that we did. If we act like we are enough, if we act like the little thing we did was enough in the moment, if we believe that that X will lead to Y, will lead to Z, our individual offerings combined, she says, will accomplish more than we ever imagined when we first began to hope. And because it's what we do and it is enough hope both accepts reality and refuses to accept that the reality we are facing is unchanging and stoic and fixed. It accepts the reality on the ground, but not that life is fixed and unchanging, that there is nothing we can do. It allows us the power to make a choice in the moment. And hope is consistent, and hope is persistent. Along with the culture of toxic positivity, there is a culture of excellence in our society that presses us to do everything perfectly or don't do it at all. Some of us all pray to it, others resist it well, but it is a pervasive force in our culture today. Hope asks us instead to aim for consistency. Make a choice between doing nothing perfectly or doing something as best as we can in the moment. 
because there is no perfection we are capable of. And because hope understands we are imperfect and life is imperfect, hope holds things loosely for us. It is not a rigid thing. It is not step A, step B, step C. It understands that nothing is perfect and we stumble along the way and sometimes things don't go as we plan because things are out of our control. Hope expects there to be chaos because things are chaotic and it adjusts its internal machinery accordingly to let things flow and spin as they need to. Hope allows us to build up or expects us to build up what some psychologists call mistake tolerance. Being able to offer grace to ourselves when we make mistakes because we will and try again and try again until we understand we can relinquish control and just try. And hope takes the long view, like planting that acorn and waiting for the oak. The big things in life that we hope for, the monumental changes that we hope for, are generational projects. Like MLK said in his final speech to his followers, I've seen the mountaintop, but I might not get there with you or Moses leading people to the promised land, even though he knew he was not going to see it for himself. The work of hope is generational work. And all we can expect to do is the best we can in the moment and hope to leave things just a little better for the next generation. I think you can probably see by now that Dana's main theory is that hope is actually a muscle. Something that can be exercised because it involves our active participation in it. It is not a passive thing. It is not an individual product project. It is a muscle that can be exercised. And it is, to my mind, a tool. Something we have in our hands to use when the moment calls for it something in our hearts and something in our hands. Hope is what we do. And the more we exercise it, the more we get skillful with the tool in our hands, we build up pathways in our brains, going back to psychology and neurology, pathways that are referred to as pathway thinking, being able to see a way through because we have exercised our minds, and agency thinking, understanding ourselves to be capable of doing something in the moment that our hand matters, that our action matters. And so because it's a muscle to be exercised, a tool to grow skillful with, what matters most is how we practice hope in the world. Dana offers us several modes of spiritual practice aimed towards hope. The first one is to practice pointing our internal compass. Paraphrasing 
the Czech playwright Václav Havel, hope is not prognostication. Hope is an orientation of our spirits. It is where we direct our attention towards what might be. And we're living in a time right now where messages pass quickly, and a lot of messages that we get are about doom. Every little thing is a sign that we're doomed. I've fallen into the trap myself on social media. Something stupid happens in the world, and I say, that's it, we're doomed. But that outlook is an orientation as well. That is not a prognostication either. That is an orientation of the spirit. To crack his point here, the compass is learning to realign where our intent intention goes. Yes, you're right. Things might be awful. We might be doomed. But maybe not. And here's why I think that's so. It's a reframing of the existential questions at hand that vex us. It is practice of keeping ourselves oriented in the direction where hope leads us. It is also good to practice one thing at a time. Deal with what is dealable with right in front of you, like the exercise she takes her daughter through when she's worried about spiraling out. What can you do right now? Because what you can do right now is enough. I am one of those people who gets overwhelmed by the future. I don't get just overwhelmed by the future. I get overwhelmed by the 20 projects in the present that I might have going on at any one time and not knowing where to begin because I'm looking to the end and not to the pathway. And it gets much easier when I can lay out for myself what I can do right now. It's also good practice for us to find what is stable in the world for us. Everything is chaos. So what keeps you connected? What keeps you, keeps you fixed? What are you holding on to to stay upright? What keeps you connected to people, to your faith, to life on earth, to life in general? What keeps you connected and standing upright? And when you're not sure what the answers to those questions are, it helps to practice going back to the basics. Even when everything seems hopeless, even when you can't find that pathway to hope, what's left to us even in those moments when we can't find it are our values as people or as communities, our sense of integrity, the spark that lives at the heart of our community. We recite our affirmation every Sunday, and part of it is because tradition is good and we fall into the thing of that's the way we do things around here, but we name every Sunday a part of the values that we express, a part of the basics of who we are as a faith community. 
And yes, when all seems chaos, when all seems loss, we go back to those things to remind us who we are because the story we tell ourselves about who we are and the stories we tell others about who they are are piece of that work towards hope. And finally, it's good to practice doing it yourself. I am one who have fall, who's fallen into this trap before. I'll be watching something on the news, on television, or reading a story in the paper in the morning and just find my anxiety and my anger picking up. It's just awful. I can't believe this. And wailing out, either out loud or in my head, somebody should do something. And about a minute later, my subconscious come back and says, you're somebody. Damn it. It that leads us to hope, it that is our act of hope, whatever it may be, is up to us. If we envision something that we can do, we do it. Hope is not passive. It asks us to act. So that's just a bit of what hope is and how we reach towards it. Hope is active. It's generational. It's not rose-colored. And it is something that we possess in our hearts and in our hands. And that's not even the whole of it. But I think it's a good start for now. In a time when hope seems impossible or at the very least hard to glimpse, caught only in fractions, it's good to remember that hope is active and that we hold it in our hands and that we need to continue using it so the tool does not get rusty and immobile when all is lost plant an oak or some flowers may it be so